for me, it would be great um, if my work can touch other people and empower other people who may have gone through the same things that I have. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about the unexpected paths to a creative career. And on today's show, we have Rhea Lynn de Guzman. Rhea is an interdisciplinary artist who works across a myriad of mediums. She's a painter, a printmaker, a sculptor, and she immigrated here from the Philippines when she was a teenager. She lived a really interesting, difficult at times life, and now she's an artist thriving and working very hard here in San Francisco. I think in today's episode, you're really going to hear a unique perspective on growing up as someone not from the United States and how that played a role in Rhea's work and her motivation and her fire to pursue what she loves doing and the impact that her journey has had on the work that she makes today. She's a wonderful artist and person, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear the conversation. So let's get started. Rhea, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, great to have you here. And I'd love to start off by talking about what you're working on these days. I know that you're an artist who works across so many different mediums, which is something I find really inspiring. You've you've reached this level of amazing depth and emotion and understanding around these mediums. Mm-hmm. So what what are you working in right now and, and what's the series about? Um, right now, um, actually, I just finished a series of work for a show um, at Kearney Street Workshop. Um, I was a featured artist at Aperture. It's an Asian Pacific American multidisciplinary art show. And so that just ended and I finished some series of work for that. Um, and I included my last series called um, Retasso meaning um, little fabric remnants. Um, So I'm really inspired by the materiality of this thing called piña fiber. And this piña fiber is made out of pineapple leaves and silk woven together. Yeah. So um, the silk is actually not from the regular, the big pineapple that you would see. It's more from this smaller um, red pineapple that's from Spain, or not really from Spain, but it was brought over by Spain to the Philippines Okay. Um, when they first came to the Philippines in the 1400s. So I think, from my research, I think it's from um, Southern America. And the fabric from, is produced uh, from, from that plant, from the fruit? Um, it's from the plant, or okay. it's from the leaves of the fruit. Okay, okay. Yeah. Wow. So early this year, I actually went to the Philippines and I went to the place where they would process these um, fibers in the Visayan region in the Middle Island. And I saw how they extracted the, the fiber from the leaves. Um, and it's very labor intensive. It takes a long time. And if you can imagine, it's like fiber by fiber. Wow. And then they connect it by hand and... Like, it just takes a long time, very tedious work. Yeah. And they have to make sure that it doesn't get tangled, so they just make this continuous 
really long strands of it and then they bleach it under the sun and that's what gives it this kind of blonde hair looking coloration to it yeah and what have you been doing with it in your work how have you been working with it um so lately i i brought a lot of it back home with me um when i came back to the u.s and i've just been experimenting with it so i got some of the pina fiber and i started experimenting with making image transfers onto the fiber itself using some photographs or xeroxed images of the maria clara dress which i've been working a lot with so this um, maria clara image is started from a literary figure named maria clara it's from a book called noli metanghere and it's written by jose rizal who's the philippine national hero back in the 1800s this book inspired a whole revolution against the spaniards against colonization and in that book, there's a literary figure named Maria Clara. So she's a woman um, that also became the symbol of what an ideal Filipina woman is supposed to be. And it lasted for like a long time. So a lot of that kind of plays into my work. So the idea of it, the concept behind it, and then the materiality, I'm trying to kind of bridge it all together. Yeah, and the notion that this ideal woman as described in this book is 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 not reality is is not yeah. is not the way things should be and it's not the it's not the identity that people should aspire to um yeah i would say that i i would say that there are a lot of stereotypes and that kind of stuck to this figure so i imagine before then before the colonial period in the philippines that women were really powerful and they were a lot of them were even above um, the men and then once the Spaniards came and colonized a country and kind of brought over Christianity um, and converted the religion it kind of became um, it changed a, a whole lot mm-hmm. so that some ideas about what the Filipina woman would be like as someone who's very religious, um, inferior to men, and like meek. Um, also, this Maria Clara image from the book, um, she's also half half Spaniard and half Filipina, so she is mestiza. So she's half white, so her skin is very she has very light skin compared to a lot of Filipino women who would have more of the brown skin and they call it morena. So there's also that power play coming into play with that where um, if you have lighter skin, you're kind of revered as more beautiful, more desirable, and they kind of think of you as a higher status in class. And you move from Manila in the Philippines to the United States when you were 14. Yeah. And you moved to San Diego and then eventually to the Tenderloin here in San Francisco. And I know you left your older brother and your older sister in the Philippines Mm -hmm. and you moved here with your mom. Your parents had had separated when you were young. Yeah. And so that's that's an incredible journey and I want to hear about it. 
And I also want to hear about how those experiences of being an immigrant and kind of going through that kind of separation of family and also kind of forced kind of cultural immersion affects your work today and what you're trying to communicate. Yeah, so actually I didn't know back then that I would actually end up living here. So it kind of just happened. Um, When I was young, my parents split up, I think when I was five or six years old. And then my father moved to Italy um, and became an OFW, um, Overseas Filipino Worker. So there's a lot of OFWs in the Philippines. It's very normal for a parent to move to another country to work and then send money back to the family so that the family can have better lives or the kids can go to school and get some food. Yeah. So that's what happened basically with my father. And I was six when he left for Italy and I never, I didn't see him again until I was 12. So he came back for vacation. And then a couple years later, I was already a sophomore in high school. I was going to the University of the Philippines Integrated School. And that's when I found out that my mom, before I was born, she was petitioned by my grandmother to come to the U.S. And it took, I guess, more than 14 years for it to happen. Um, And finally, at that time, it was going through. And then my mom and I started applying for a visa. And it happened really quickly. So um, I think a month later, we ended up going to San Diego, where a lot of my relatives live from my mom's side. Did you understand what was happening at the time in terms of this complete move away from from home and and why? Um, At the time, I didn't really understand it completely. I just knew, okay, we're lining up now, we're getting our visa, um, we're doing all these things, and then we're flying to LA, and then my uncles came to pick us up, and then we were in San Diego. At first, when it was happening, it kind of felt like it didn't feel real to me. It felt really surreal, and it just didn't really register in my head that, okay, I'm picking up my life and I'm moving here now to yeah. this other new country. And I just thought that, oh, maybe it's just a vacation. Maybe I'll come back later. And yeah. So you, you didn't realize that you you wouldn't see your brother and sister and yeah. live with them? Yeah, Basically, um, they weren't able to come because they were over 21. So there's a rule that if you have kids, um, if they're over 21, then they can't come. So I was able to come with my mom because I was 14 at the time. And she didn't actually tell my dad about it. So my father didn't know that I was in the U.S. And then a couple months later, he came to the Philippines and I wasn't there. And he's really upset. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, so it, at that point, I kind of lost some contact with my father, too. And we didn't talk for a while until I think I was 19 or 20 when we found communication again. And yeah. he asked me to go to the Philippines and meet up. So that was the first time I came back to the Philippines after that whole experience. Yeah, and a lot of this was kind of hidden from you or not explained when was it kind of revealed the the full kind of arc of this of this story um you mean the immigration yeah yeah and 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 
and kind of your father not not knowing about the move and and all of that was that something that you were kind of sat down and explained when when you got here or was it something that you would just have to ask questions over the those years those teenage years to get to the bottom of um i guess it was always weird because i think my mom didn't really expect that it would happen because I'm not sure, but I think she was petitioned before I was born because um, she has older brothers. So my uncles um, at the time, I think in the 70s, they joined the U.S. Navy. Um, the U.S. used to have a Navy base in Zambales in Subic, and that's where my mom's family is from. So they were around that area. And so my uncles joined and then they were able to immigrate to San Diego. And then they petitioned for my grandparents and my late grandparents, and then they were able to come. And then my grandmother petitioned my mom. Um, they actually had a lot of kids. My grandma had 12 kids, wow. and my, she had two families. So the first family where my mom is from, she was the youngest. So they kind of did it in order. So my mom was among the last kid to get petitioned. And because my mother got married and had kids, I think it made it more complicated. Yeah. So that's why it took so much longer. And maybe, I'm guessing, but maybe my mom didn't expect that she would even come here anymore. So maybe that's why I wasn't talked about a lot. Until and then, then the opportunity came and it was like, well, now we got to move. Yeah. To, yeah. You don't, you don't wait on it. Yeah, basically. Maybe she felt like, oh, I don't want to mess anything up. Let's just go. And I think she was scared to tell my dad or they didn't really speak at the time, so she didn't want anything to happen to kind of mess things up yeah. about the immigration. And uh, in terms of your relationship with your your family now and your and your mm -hmm. mom, I know you you work through a lot of this in your work. Is it also stuff that you kind of talk about openly in, in terms of those times and and the turmoil and the the challenge of that now that you're an adult? Um, I guess. A lot of it was really weird when it was happening. So um, I didn't really know how to deal with it then when I was a teenager. So I was lost a lot. And then I found art later on and it kind of helped me deal with things. I found a different way, like a different, more creative outlet to kind of go through it. And then now that I'm an adult, um, it's still weird, but I come see them sometimes when I go to the Philippines so because your yeah. your mom is back there now oh yeah so yeah. my mom um, immigrated here with me um, initially we left in we lived in San Diego and then she found a job in the Bay Area um, I was a so I was a freshman in high school in San Diego and then a few months later she found a job here and moved here by herself and I lived with relatives in San Diego for a while until I finished out that year and then it was just was really weird for me because I've never lived with relatives before. So it especially since I moved to a new country, I had to learn a whole new language. I mean, I knew English then, but I didn't speak it every day with people. Yeah. Um, so it was just really tough. And then I decided that I was going to follow my mom here in San Francisco when I finished my freshman year. Yeah. So I moved over here with my mom, um, even though it was tough and she... It's a single mother, um, recently immigrated from the Philippines, and then we ended up living in the Tenderloin area. 
Yeah. And yeah. tenderloin kind of has a, a, a reputation, at least nowadays, of being a little bit of a, a, a tougher neighborhood in mm-hmm. parts. Was it like that? I know you have a great affection for your upbringing there. Mm-hmm. Was there a love for that neighborhood at the same time there were kind of challenges about living there? Um, there are definitely challenges living there. Um, and because my mom was a single mother, it was tough for her. Now having, you know, uh, a teenage daughter depending on her. So it was really tough. We didn't have the best living arrangement. Um, we had a bunch of roommates and yeah, people probably can't imagine what it was like for me to live there. Um, but at the same time, I met a lot of friends living in this building and a lot of them were also newly immigrated from the Philippines. So it was great to meet these people who are my friends and I still they're still my friends up to now yeah um so we kind of just went through it together so that was fun for us yeah yeah and when you were a kid I know that you weren't necessarily kind of surrounded by creative folks and and artists and were you making art kind of as a as a young person um when I was a kid in the Philippines, um, I've always loved to draw when I was young, but it was never encouraged to take seriously. I have this really funny memory from when I was in first grade where I was um, had some crayons and I was coloring, and my first grade teacher didn't like that I was doing that and confiscated all my crayons. <laughs> <laughs> and ever since then, I felt so discouraged about it. Yeah. And then there's another memory from when I isn't was... That, isn't yeah. that, uh, I mean, teachers can be so wonderful. And yeah. at the same time, bad teachers can have such an impact. I remember yeah. I had a, a, a similar story where uh, an elementary school teacher of mine had collected all the doodles that I was making mm-hmm. during class and kind of put them in a drawer and and then, you know, very dramatically, you know, took them out on parent-teacher night to show my parents <laughs> and say, look at what he's doing. Yeah, like and it's my, so bad. <laughs> yeah, and then my parents saying, well, we actually encourage Rob and his artwork. I was lucky in that regard. And this teacher was also a pain in the butt and they knew mm-hmm. it. So, you know, it's just interesting that early on, right? Those memories can stick with us because yeah. we're kids, you know, and we think that adults kind of know. And exactly. so they're, they're telling us kind of something we should know about ourselves. Yeah. So, so that experience happened for you. And then what was the other memory? Um, the other memory was, um, before I was going to school, my mom was actually a school teacher in the Philippines. Um, she was teaching third grade students. Um, and my dad used to send money for me so I can, I guess, go to school or whatever I needed. Um, And one time he sent money and my mom asked one of the students to go with me to pick it up. And we lived close to the school where my mom was teaching. I think I was six or seven at the time. Yeah. So we picked up the money and I thought, oh, great. Now I have money for whatever I want. (laughs) So I... How old were you? you were... I think I was six. Okay, okay. <laughs> so in my head, it's like, okay, I have some money now. <laughs> <laughs> right, I've earned this. I'm a good yeah. kid. So I um, asked the student that my mom um, t- told me to go with. I asked him to go to the store. And I bought these crayons. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to splurge and buy all these crayons. <laughs> so I did that. <laughs> we went back to my mom. And she was so upset that I used the money. It wasn't a lot of, it was just a little bit of the money, but right. just, 
she was so shocked that I did that because I was six. <laughs> right, right, right. And you got so, some money and you. Yeah. And so did, did a part of you think, oh, did you did you associate kind of buying uh, crayons yeah. with like a negative thing or was it just kind of. It was just an impulse. Like I, right. I don't even know why I did it. I just did it. And yeah. I thought I want some crayons. So I did that. Yeah. And then my mom found out, like I gave her the money and it wasn't the exact amount. Right. And she was so shocked that I did that that she made me go back to the store and return the crayons. Uh, which is like, come on, yeah. for a kid who just wants to draw and create, that's the yeah. that's so tough. Yeah. And so you went through you went through schooling here in San Francisco and then you eventually were studying initially studying business mm-hmm. at University of California um, Riverside? Yeah, correct. Yeah. And so, and then I, I had read that you actually just needed some extra credits. Mm-hmm. And so you went to, uh, what was it, the, the City College of San Francisco? Yeah. Yeah, and, and ended up taking some art classes because that was kind of all that was available yeah. to you. And it was at that kind of happenstance moment of, you know, just taking these, these classes for credits that mm-hmm. you kind of awakened to your your artist again tell me tell me about that how did how did that kind of awakening happen and and what was the moment like for you um I guess it was really odd because um I knew that I was going to be a business major um growing up my mom always asked me to be a doctor or a lawyer and I thought I didn't want to be a doctor because I was afraid of blood and I didn't really like science. <laughs> and so growing up, I liked numbers. I liked math. So I thought, okay, at least maybe I can be a business major. It'll make my mom happy. And then after that, I thought I'll go to business school and then I'll go to law school and be a lawyer. So that was my plan. Yeah, because and there's a, I mean, parents put a lot of expectations on on any child. But is there, yeah. I know it's the only experience you've had, but do you think there's kind of an even heftier expectation on mm-hmm. on kids of of immigrants and immigrant kids yeah I think it's even more of a pressure yeah because I was brought over here I have this privilege that you know my brother my older brother and older sister didn't have so growing up I've always had this little bit of guilt I think from that that they didn't get to come here and I did and I get all these opportunities and it's tougher there, like economy wise. And yeah, it's just tougher to really make it in the Philippines compared to the U.S. with all the corruption going on there, too. Um, The majority of the people live underneath the poverty line. So it's really hard. So the rich are super rich, but the poor so much more. Yeah. And so you you just thought, okay, business school, I'll become a lawyer Mm -hmm. and you know, I'll, I'll make money and, and I'll kind of fulfill this, this destiny that my, my family wants for me. Yeah. So at first I had that mindset and after I graduated from high school, um, I went to UC Riverside. I really actually didn't have any idea what that school was going to be like. I just picked it cause I wanted to try living by myself far away Yeah, and kind of yeah, just try to make it on my own. I was 18 and I thought I could do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then I went there and I really didn't like it. So after my freshman year of college, I moved back to San Francisco. And at that point, I was pretty much lost. I didn't really know what to do. But I thought, okay, I'm still a business major. I'll go to City College. 
Um, so I went to City College, but I was also a slacker. I was always late to things. And when it was time for enrollment, all the classes I needed were all gone. So the only classes available were art. So I thought, oh, this is really silly. So I guess I'll take a, a drawing class. <laughs> like at the time, it felt silly. Like, why am I taking a drawing class? Yeah, to I be even, a business major. Yeah. yeah. I even asked some of my friends, like, oh, do you want to take a drawing class with me? <laughs> and so some of, one friend took it with me. Yeah. So I at least I had a friend. And right. I thought, this is so out of what yeah. we would do. Right. But then at the same time, it felt really right. So then I just kept taking it. Like so, so you you you're kind of like goofing on it. Like this mm -hmm. is ridiculous. Why am I doing this? Like yeah, yeah friends, you guys want to just yeah. do this together and whatever. And but then you sit down in this drawing class and it just starts to click, and and you start to feel okay. Actually, this this feels right. Yeah, it started to feel right, and I kept making excuses, taking more art classes even though I didn't need it anymore for my requirements. And even though I was on time for my other classes, so I was taking business classes as well. Um, but I kept taking the art classes. And when one of my instructors thought that I was uh, an art major, and then when he found out I wasn't, I told him, oh, no, I'm, I'm a business major. And he's like, what? Why? <laughs> <laughs> and he kept encouraging me to really pursue art. I mean, I wasn't the best artist or anything. I was just doing it and yeah. I, I enjoyed it a lot. But for some reason, he saw some potential in whatever I was doing and kept encouraging me for like a year. So wow. finally, after a while, I decided to just do it. Well, actually, before then, um, I took a little break. I went to the Philippines when I was 20. Okay. It was for the first time. And I went there. I was there for a it couple was, of months. It was for the first time since you had since yeah. you had moved. Yeah, wow. since I immigrated here. So this was a time when I finally talked to my dad again, and he got me a ticket, and I went to the Philippines for the first time by myself. And then I reconnected with my brother and my sister, my sister's kids who used to be babies when I left. And then when I got there, they were in almost in high school. Yeah. And when you came back from this trip, because I know you got a scholarship mm -hmm. then to go to San Francisco Art Institute. And yeah. so what happened? You came back and when did the scholarship and, and the Art Institute come into play? Yeah. So I came back from the trip from the Philippines and I learned a lot from it and it opened up my eyes. Um, when I was here before then, I felt like I was taking a lot of things for granted I was kind of, I guess, depressed about what happened and like the whole situation. And I just kind of got lost from there. And then when I saw how my sister's life is in the Philippines, it kind of, yeah, helped open my eyes. Like, why am I being such a brat? My sister's life, you know, isn't as lucky as mine was, considering even though I went through some tough times. Um, so it did just kind of helped me put things in perspective. Yeah. And it made me think about the privilege of my life here and what I could accomplish and if I had some potential. Yeah. And so I came back. Uh, my GPA before then, I was getting really bad grades and I was barely getting to classes. And then when I came back, I just felt more inspired. Yeah. And I started taking things more seriously and I switched my major to art. I talked to a counselor and I got things in order 
And then my instructor from art um, was telling me, oh, you should apply to this scholarship. Um, we're going to nominate you. And I didn't even know what the San Francisco Art Institute was at the time. I just thought, okay, let's see what this is all about. And they were like, oh, only one person can get this, so I can't guarantee that you'll even get it. Um, but it turned out that I got it. Wow. So I got a partial scholarship yeah. and went to SFAI and transferred in as a junior. Okay. Um, so I saved two years <laughs> yeah. of uh, tuition. Yeah, and which then is... I got some partial scholarship too. Hey everyone, I want to tell you a little bit more about Root Division, the amazing visual arts nonprofit here in San Francisco that we're partnering with all month to feature amazing artists who have been through their program. Right now, Root Division is celebrating 15 years of giving artists a space to work, a space to teach, and really helping out the community in amazing ways here in the Bay Area and reverberating throughout the country and the world because their artists exhibit everywhere. If you live in the Bay Area, this is something that's very cool. Making Ways is actually on display at the Root Division Gallery in Soma in San Francisco. And you can go there and you can see my illustrations of the guests from the show who are Root Division alumni. You can listen to excerpts from the episodes and you can see amazing artwork on display from artists who have gone through the Root Division program over the last 15 years. So help celebrate Root Division and their 15-year anniversary. Head on down to Root Division to check out the exhibit. And if you do not live in the Bay Area, check out rootdivision.org and consider giving to the organization. They really do an amazing job of contributing, supporting, and building the community here in the Bay Area and supporting artists and creative people. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. When you came back you were kind of doing this balancing act between the expectations of your family and this kind of, you know, privilege, as you say, to, mm -hmm. to live the life here that you've had. And at the same time, you had this kind of rebellious mm -hmm. nature of like, you know, it, it hasn't all been easy. Yes, I'm in the States, but it's been hard. Yeah. And I've, you know, raised myself a lot of the time. And why shouldn't I take full advantage of everything you know, this opportunity has, has given me to offer and pursue what I, what I love doing. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's what you, you started to think about. Yeah. In a way I started to think about that. Um, and I also talked to my brother who is actually a photographer. Um, he's pretty successful in his art so yeah. in the Philippines. He's a photographer and now he's based in Japan and he does photojournalism. So I talked to him and I look up to my brother because he's, very successful and he got to do what he wants and he explained to me that you know just do what you want in life because that's your life and it doesn't matter if you want to be an artist or if you want to be a lawyer or whatever just do what makes you happy so I really took that to heart and that really motivated me to just do what I want yeah and also what you just said about me being rebellious about you know this is nobody paid for me to go to school I did it all on by myself so I also have that I guess pride yeah that I should be able to do what I want yeah and so then you completed your uh, BFA mm -hmm. at San Francisco Art Institute and then you continued maybe a couple years in between but you continued on in Chicago to get your master's yeah and tell me about that experience 
Um, so I, after I graduated from SFAI, I was in the painting department. I worked with really good instructors and I developed good relationships with them. Um, after that, I didn't know that I was going to grad school. It didn't, since I'm not, I didn't grow up, grow up in the art field. So a lot of these were new to me. I didn't know that, oh, after you get your BFA, you go get your MFA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those were just, yeah, very new to me until right. somebody, um, actually Amy Ellingson okay. was one of my instructors, advisors at SFAI who first told me about the MFA. And she was like, don't you want to go get an MFA? And I thought, what is that? Why? Right, right, right. <laughs> so I yeah. thought about it and then took some years off, developed my portfolio. I went to these portfolio reviews, talked to people, showed them my work. Um, and I ended up talking to somebody from Chicago, School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and showed them my portfolio. Um, took me a while to get in because, okay. um, you know, it's one of the top art schools in the country. Yeah. And that was really my dream was to go to the top art school in the country <laughs> just because, like, why shouldn't I be able to? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> like, just go completely for it. Yeah. yeah. So I thought just because, you know, I don't come from a very high socioeconomic background, that should not stop me from going to one of the top art schools in the country. Yeah. So did you yeah. did you apply a few times and keep updating yeah. your portfolio and you were just like, I'm doing this. This is going to yeah. happen. Whatever it takes, I'm going to keep striving yeah. to get in. Pretty much. Um, the first time I was still in undergrad, so I was just trying it just to see what the process was. I knew that I didn't have a chance yet. And I didn't really have my work developed um, yet. So, And also because I transferred into SFAI, um, I didn't have that advantage of having been able to do art for a while. Right. Since I just started when I was at City College and I didn't really know how to paint yet. It was very new. So it was a struggle even when I was at the Art Institute. Um, they thought, why is this girl here? Like, what? What is she doing? You felt so, a little bit behind yeah. behind things. Yeah, I yeah. was definitely behind, but I worked my butt off and you know, I work also I worked at a dental office during the day. Um and then I would go to class later and I just had that drive because I guess what I was going through. Yeah. Um so I worked really hard to what guess, you were going through, up. meaning like what what you had gone through yeah. to, to get to that point and also just the way you were living at that yeah. time. You wanted to you want to work as hard as possible to kind of elevate not only what you were doing and, and the creative potential, but elevate kind of your life in, yeah, in the basically. States. Yeah, because I felt like it felt very alone at times that I didn't have anyone to kind of encourage me to do it. And I knew my mom is a, a good mother, but I didn't expect for her to be there for me just because I knew it was tough for her felt like I, I had to do this right now yeah <laughs> and so like like let's yeah. keep the momentum going and yeah. yeah so when I was waitlisted at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago I got into CCA at the same time um, and Ted Burbs um, who recently passed away like I met him a few years ago and he was so nice to me he even gave me made up a scholarship for me wow and so I thought I was going to go to CCA and that that's was here in it. the city, California College of the Arts. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, OK, I'm just going to go here and, you know, get my MFA. But I even paid my deposit already. Yeah. Um, but then 
I talked to somebody from SAIC in Chicago and asked her like um, that I was waitlisted. Is there any chance that I could still get in? And she said, you know, why don't you just apply again next year? And I thought, yeah, why don't I just apply again next year? <laughs> Sometimes when people say the simplest yeah. things, you're like, oh, yeah, that, that works. It's not yeah. it's not like all or nothing yeah. in every millisecond. Yeah. So then I thought about that. And even though I already paid my um, deposit for a CCA and I asked them, um, can I if I don't get into this other school, can I still go to CCA next year? And they said, no, we don't do that. You can't defer. So if you defer or if you say no, you have to apply again. So it was a gamble. Wow. I have to apply again, but there's no guarantee that I'll get in and I'll even get a scholarship. So I decided to take that risk and apply again, continue working on my portfolio. And then I applied to SAIC and CCA again the following year. And then I got into Chicago and I even got a scholarship. So wow. that was icing on the cake. Congratulations. That's so, it's so wonderful. And, and what was your experience like in Chicago? At that point, did you start to kind of experiment in different mediums? Did you feel like, okay, I'm kind of getting into my groove and feeling kind of on par and on track with your colleagues and start, like, was it about kind of getting really strong in the in the mediums or was it also about kind of developing your own artistic voice? Um, it was a combination of both. Um, I think for me it was more about um, developing my own artistic voice um, and kind of making sense of everything I've experienced and why I was doing things and just kind of putting it all together and at the same time trying to connect it with contemporary art history or just what's going on, what other artists are doing. Um, I also took some post-colonial theory art classes, which made sense with the ideas I was going through. Um, and I made it a point to not be, not to limit myself in one specific medium and work with so many different people as much as I can. So I ended up working with painters, um, printmakers, writers, art historians, sculptors, and just kind of surrounding myself with different artists, I thought was really helpful. Yeah, it seems it seems rare to kind of pursue every every track there. Did it did it in a way kind of double yeah. up your double and triple and quadruple your workloads because I mean, these are all mediums now that you execute in beautifully. Was it your mission at the time to kind of become, um, you know, very strong in all these areas? Um, I didn't really think of it that way when it was happening. I just thought, okay, I'm in a new city. I'm in grad school. Um, I want to see what else I can do. Um, I think some of my advisors like told me to try different things. Like That's kind of the first thing you're encouraged to do in your first semester of grad school was to just completely forget everything you're good at and just try different things that you've never done before. Yeah. So there's some vulnerability in that, like kind of a test in your ego, like, okay, you don't know how to do this, but right. try anyway. Right. <laughs> so at first I was really into the design aspect. So I was taking some 3D modeling things. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that was the biggest challenge for me, for my advisors, was to play 
they really wanted me to just try making things intuitively because yeah. I, maybe I've been doing that a little bit, but not primarily. Yeah. So I was trying to do that. And now you, you paint, you draw, you do these, you know, fabric and print work, you sculpt. When you are conceptualizing a series or trying to convey an emotion or an experience, what is the process you go through in order to decide on which medium in your toolkit you're going to kind of grab and incorporate? Um, I guess it's hard to say, but sometimes I just feel like drawing or sometimes I just feel like doing some image transfers with my hands. Um, image transfer, I've been doing that for years, even in undergrad, and has a symbolic meaning to me. And just the idea of going through different ways of creating different media is also symbolic to me because I move around a lot. Um, I came from the Philippines. Even when I was in the Philippines, I also lived in different places. When I moved here, I lived in different places. So I think it's it echoes those kinds of movements in my work. The photo transfer to you symbolizes like the transferring of identities from place to place and experience yeah. to experience. Yeah. In a way, I feel that when I'm doing it. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, as you're actually doing the process, it, it echoes the, the experience and the emotions that uh, yeah. your journey it, took you on. And the image, I find that it when you take it out of its context and move it somewhere else into a new composition, it gives it a new possibility that I never thought it had. And so you've shown across the U.S., you've also shown in India, you're a teacher. When did teaching kind of come into play for you, and what's that experience like now to work with adults and young people and kind of maybe be that voice <laughs> for them like like you you had in your life that was uh, encouraging at the right times and you know, other, other times not so much. But uh, tell me about the experience of teaching for you. Yeah, so teaching, when I was in grad school, um, I the first time I started teaching was just being a TA, teaching assistant. And then after that, um, after grad school, I decided to move back to San Francisco and reconnect with the art scene here, um, so which was really scary because I went away and then I came back and start had to start from scratch again. Yeah, and then, and, and so you left Chicago more or less after you got your degree. Yeah. Okay. So I moved back here. Um, I did a lot of research. I went to SFAI's um, online board and you know called all these galleries, met with so many people, emailed them, and then I found Root Division. I volunteered at Southern Exposure. Did this one-on-one mentorship program with them. Um, and then after Southern Exposure, I um, went to Root Division and became a studio artist. And then I started teaching there. I taught in the adult education program, yeah, which and, was and, yeah, really let's, helpful. That's awesome. Yeah, let's, let's just pause on, on mm -hmm. Root Division. So we're celebrating their 15-year their anniversary, and they're an arts, a visual arts nonprofit here in the city. So... So you started, t talk to me about kind of how you connected with them and, and what the program was like for you and not only facilitating your own work being created, but then, yeah, the, the teaching aspect. Yeah, so when I 
first joined Root Division, I think they were in a transition phase where they were looking for um, a long-term place. And when I joined, we were in the at Market Street between 6th and 7th. Um, and they have different programs um, where you can teach. So I taught in the adult education program where um, adults or continuing ed can come at night or on the weekends and take classes. So that was my first time teaching by myself, okay. which was nerve-wracking, but at the same time really rewarding because I it helped me think about what do I want to teach, um, why do I like this, and how can I teach better. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a couple of years. Um, I feel like each class, I got better and better. So it was a learning experience. And it was painting? Yeah. Um, I taught so many different classes. Okay, drawing, <laughs> like, painting. Yeah. I taught um, screen printing, um, acrylic painting, mixed media, image transfer. Okay. I also did some uh, private lessons where yeah. I taught. And so your time at Root Division, what impact did it have on your art personally? And then what kind of impact you know, did it have uh, on your kind of connection to the community and, and the art world here? Yeah, so before I joined Root Division, I was still um, emerging here, and I didn't really know that many people except for my time at SFAI. Um, So just joining Root Division, getting teaching experiences, meeting new artists, all these artists, collaborating with them, um, exhibiting with them was a great experience for me. Yeah. But the best part I would say is... um, when Root Division found its um, new building and the mission, um, I thought about, I proposed this new partner for them, which is uh, the Filipino Education Center at Bessie Carmichael Elementary, because it's in the neighborhood. So their new neighborhood now is very, um, there's a lot of Filipino immigrants in that area. So I thought it'd be great for them to kind of get acquainted with the neighborhood yeah so i proposed to teach there and michelle who's the executive director at redivision um let me teach there so that was great i got to connect with my community and yeah. i got to teach the um little kids that were newly immigrated from the philippines got to teach them art and speak to them in tagalog and that was really great for me yeah because when i was young i didn't have that encouragement and to be able to give that back to the community is amazing yeah to come kind of full circle did Mm -hmm. you just you you recognized kind of immediately what a wonderful impact you can have on these kids and yeah and give to them yeah since i've experienced what it's like to immigrate here to not have that art background and support especially at that age at a young age i think it's really important yeah yeah and what about the aspirations for your work personally what you hope to kind of achieve as an artist whether that's you know your internal feelings about the work you make or you know external accolades and then also the impact you hope to have on on viewers um for me it would be great um if my work can touch other people and empower other people who may have gone through the same things that i have or are going through the same things. 
um, I just want other artists, especially Filipina American artists, to know that it is possible to pursue art, and there are a lot of other Filipina artists out there. Um, so if I can empower them, I think that makes my art really powerful. Um, and in the future, I think I would also like to keep teaching more and keep developing that. Right now, I've been teaching for three years. I graduated in 2014, so I've been trying to build my experience. So I think uh, for me just to teach more, show my work more. Um, also, I am doing some projects right now, um, doing some proposals, and I would like to maybe try living in the Philippines again for a little bit and reconnecting with the art scene there and seeing how my work could happen there. Yeah. Coming up. That would be really here. exciting to, to not only be able to have an impact in the Filipino community here in the States, but go back and... Yeah, see and, what that's like. Yeah, What yeah. that means. Awesome. Yeah. That's wonderful. Rhea, cool. it's so nice to meet you, and thank you so much for, for joining the show. I'm wishing you tons of success. I really love your artwork. And, thank you so uh, much. Yeah, best of luck. Thanks. Okay, that was my conversation with Rhea Lynn de Guzman. Rhea, thank you so much for joining the show and being so open about your journey, about your immigration story, and about your work and what you had to overcome and push through and the motivation that you really instilled in yourself in order to get there. I highly recommend you guys check out Rhea's work. Of course, go to makingways.co. We've got all the show notes from today's episode. And if you're at your computer, you can go to reyadeguzman.com to learn more about Rhea and her work. And we're also celebrating the 15-year anniversary of Root Division, an amazing visual arts nonprofit here in San Francisco that gives these kinds of opportunities to artists in the Bay Area to not only produce work, but also to teach and to mentor. Check out rootdivision.org. If you're in town, come out for an event. And if you're not, think about contributing and donating online so that more artists and more people in the community can experience these kinds of growth opportunities to build on their own work and contribute to the community at large. Be sure to sign up for the Making Ways newsletter on our website. Follow us on all the social media. We appreciate hearing from you. And also don't forget to write a review on iTunes. That means the world to us and really helps expose Making Ways podcast to a whole new audience on the iTunes store. Making Ways is engineered by Jim Heffernan at TTO Productions. Our intro music is by The Sandworms, and we've got some music by Jim Heffernan in the mix, too. Hope you guys have a great day, and I'll see you next week.